This is an irreverent podcast. Check out irreverent.fm for shows from all our friends. Hello and welcome to Exvangelical, a show exploring the world inside and outside the evangelical subculture. I'm your host, Blake Chastain. I'm sorry I missed releasing an episode last week. I came down with a short cold and wasn't able to complete my edits on the upcoming episodes I have in the queue. However, I wanted to make sure that something was released this week, and this prior interview I conducted with Anthea Butler remains as relevant as ever. As you'll hear, Dr. Butler is a professor of religion and the author of the book White Evangelical Racism. Her book is an incredible volume that speaks to the long history of racism within evangelical belief and practice. As we've seen in the past year here in the United States, in the context of school board protests, book bannings, book burnings, and conservative outcry over academic frameworks like critical race theory that seek to understand and discuss our racist history, too many people, especially too many white people, aren't willing, either emotionally or intellectually, to reckon with our past. These conversations aren't pleasant, and these realities aren't pre- pleasant. And they bring up complicated feelings like guilt and shame in white people who are ignorant of these aspects of our history. But guess what? The realities of slavery and subsequent injustices and cruelties perpetuated under white supremacy, Jim Crow, and other current forms of racism that persist today are far less pleasant than avoiding some emotional work. And within white supremacy, ignorance is only a shield for white people. For all others, it's a liability. And Dr. Butler's book helps shed necessary light on aspects of our white evangelical history that evangelical historians would prefer to ignore. I hope you enjoy this conversation with Dr. Butler, which we had back in March 2021. These are the types of conversations that I believe are incredibly valuable. Regardless of whatever label you use to describe yourself, whether you identify as a Christian ex-Christian, evangelical, ex-evangelical, or whether you eschew as many labels as possible. What is important is that we reckon honestly with our cultural and religious inheritance and decide for ourselves that we repudiate the harm it has caused and commit to justice today. These are the sorts of things that animate me and my own sort of personal interrogation of these issues, even as my own faith and beliefs have changed over time. I never really thought of exvangelical as something that would be as sticky and life-defining as evangelical was. Rather, it would signal part of an experience and could be a place where we could start to have these conversations and also clearly repudiate the places that we came from. And part of that is by reckoning with the impact that white Christianity has had here in America, as well as throughout the world. So I hope you enjoy this conversation, and I'm so thankful for books like these and for uh, people like Dr. Butler who are talking about these things in the public sphere, within academia, in the media, and everywhere, everywhere else that these conversations need to happen, because it's absolutely vital that we process these things, that we talk about them, and that we commit to changing. Have a listen to this conversation. Um, let me know what you think. You can email me at contact at exvangelicalpodcast.com. I am taking a bit of a break from social media in order to focus on my book. However, you can follow me on Twitter at brchastain. You can follow me on Instagram at brchastain underscore, as well as on TikTok at that same uh, name at brchastain underscore. Exvangelical is a production of the Post-Evangelical Post, which is the newsletter that I write at postevangelicalpost.com. You can support my work at four, six, or eight dollars a month and receive access to uh, ad-free podcast feeds as well as subscriber-only posts and access to a uh, Post-Evangelical Post supporters discord. You can also subscribe for free. You can find out all about that at postevangelicalpost.com. All right, everyone, let's get into it.
Today, I'm welcoming Dr. Anthea Butler back to the show. Dr. Butler is Associate Professor of Religion and Africana Studies at the University of Pennsylvania and author of White Evangelical Racism, The Politics of Morality in America. I spoke with her previously on season one of Powers and Principalities, which was also co-published in this feed. We're recording this episode on Friday, March 19th. Dr. Butler, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be back. Yeah, yeah. I'm really glad. I want to say at the top, I'm really glad that your book is being published in 2021. And let me tell you why. People, including a lot of progressives, I think, were likely really hoping to let white evangelicalism sort of recede into the background during a Biden administration. But as we've already seen in the, since the insurrection on January 6th, as well as the murders in Atlanta this week that we'll talk about, it's still just painfully, brutally relevant. So I want to just up top, thank you for contributing to this ongoing conversation because these issues aren't going away. You're welcome. White evangelicals are kind of like the zombies of Christianity. You can try to chop them out, but they just keep coming back. That's right. <laughs> that is what's valuable about your book. So let's get right into it. The introduction itself doesn't pull any punches and just goes right for it. The introduction is titled Evangelical Racism, a feature, not a bug. So let's start there. How does your book contrast to some of the more lofty and idealistic histories written by evangelical scholars who are trying to do a bit of hagiography with a their bit, movements? A bit. <laughs> <laughs> let's, let me be blunt about the project that this is. It, you know, this is not hagiography. This is uh, this is the stuff y'all left on the cutting room floor when you were trying to make evangelicals look really good. And, and this is your history. And uh, there's, a, there's a little phrase that people say on Twitter all the time. It's like, this you? And so <laughs> I, I, I want to hold up my book and go, this you, this, this you right? This is you. And, and I'm, you know, people may be laughing right now, but I'm really serious about that. And I think you know, the reason to do this book and the reason to do a historical sweep from the 19th century to the 21st is that I want people to see that evangelicals have been racist all of the time. Now, that's not the only thing that they have been, but it is a very big part of their theology, their belief system, how they structure their societies, how they structure the political action they engage in. It's, it's a bracing look at that. And so when we talk about the historians that I bring up, you know, Marsden, Noel, you know, Kidd et al., you know, I know these are white guys who meant well, who wanted to write these histories, but I'm saying to them, I'm sorry, but um, this is the other part of the history that you didn't talk about. And so I, I explicitly also address Michael Gerson, who writes for the Washington Post, in part because he was the one that asked this question. It's like, how did we get here and wringing his hands and everything? And I just thought, I have to just kind of like make an intervention in all of this hand wringing and say, this stop it. This is fake and this is who you are, and you know this who you this is who you are. And mm -hmm. let's lay this thing out so everybody else can see it. Mm -hmm. Right. And that is one of the things that, that you get right to is that these historians of evangelicalism really do try to define it via theology or history and aren't really concerned with the racial or nationalist or political concerns. And we talked about this uh, in, a, in a different event uh, that we did on Twitter together, but why is restricting those definitions of evangelicalism to those particular spheres so important to them? I know you you already addressed this a little bit in your first response. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's their playing field. If you talk about theology, nobody else understands this theology. You know, nobody understands Calvinism very well, and nobody understands these, you know, Beverage and Quadrilateral. And so to put it in the thing gives it, it gives it a veneer of this kind of intellectualism that, you know, it's not really about intellectualism, it's about boundary making and how they make their boundaries apart from each other. And so what I really wanna make clear, and I know you're not saying this, but I really wanna make this clear for your listeners, is that this is history too. Right. And it's, it's, a, it, and it's about theology and it's about all those things that I could go toe to toe with any of these guys on any of this stuff. But the fact of the matter is, is that they choose to leave out race and gender and all of these other things as a category because they don't want to deal with the negative effects of how white evangelical racism has played a role 
in, in the history of this country, whether we're talking about, you know, the Ku Klux Klan, or we're talking about opposition to civil rights, opposition to educational benefits, opposition to abortion, all of it. I mean, they just, it's just part and parcel of everything. And I don't want to let them get away with this sort of, let's cherry pick this the way we want to cherry pick it. Right. And you mentioned someone that I think is a repeat offender of that, which is Michael Gerson, as you said, yes. who really does try to be selective about his evangelical history. That is such a such an important thing to point out is that people like Gerson will try to say, oh, well, Wheaton was in, was founded by abolitionists. Yeah. So like, yes, those are things that could be considered evangelical history, but even people that may be within these white evangelical circles, how do you think they can respond to that sort of rhetoric? Well, I mean, they, they can find happiness in this, right? I mean, I'm, I'm thinking about one of the big pieces that, you know, I probably tweeted a whole bunch about back in 2018 was Gerson's Atlantic article, The Last Temptation, you know, trying to put this in a, in a, in a caveat that evangelicals were really never this bad until Trump. How could this be, right? And they want to blame everything on Trump. And I'm like, this is not about Trump. Trump just, you know, was the apotheosis of everything you needed him to be. Mm-hmm. Trump is not the issue. The issue is your own history. And so when we have this sleight of hand that, you know, writers like Gerson try to do, it's, it's, a, it's a thing in which they're trying to put it in a certain kind of political space and a certain kind of space. I, I call it the project of how do we make ourselves wasps, white Anglo-Saxon Protestants, right? Instead of, they're not the people who were in this tall steeple, you know, Presbyterian churches and, you know, all of that. But this is the project that they have engaged in to try to make themselves that way. So when Francis Fitzgerald can write a whatever it was, 700, 800 page book about evangelicals and not say one thing about Black people except to mention Martin Luther King once, that's craziness. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's not just Gerson, it's, it's all these people, and it's a project of theirs, and it's a project that we can find lodged in to the kinds of things Buckley was doing, the kinds of stuff where we're thinking about Rush Dooney, or we're thinking about, um, you know, the John Birch Society, it's a project about whiteness and how to preserve white male power in the midst of a changing demographic environment. Mm-hmm. What are some examples from your book, from your experience as a scholar from that period and how racism manifested early within the post-Civil War era uh, and how it continued. And also, I do want to stress this isn't something that is confined to, say, the Southern Baptist Convention. It's present in other mainline evangelical circles as well. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I'm going to even back you up even further. Okay. So I'm going to back you up because I, I'm actually going in. I'm I'm at the top of the 19th century with slavery mm-hmm. and, and talking about that even before we get to the Civil War, which we're talking about, you know, denominational splits because, over slavery, the kinds of things that are used to talk about slavery. And I start off this chapter you know, with a pretty big story about a particular Black singer, Christian singer, and the story about his meeting with Dan Cathy and another infamous pastor who talk about slavery in the midst of this, ostensibly about how, you know, how are we supposed to see this now in light of this, this history? And so even the attempts of evangelicals to talk about the history of slavery end up getting messy and stupid, okay? And that's why I wanted to use that as an example so that when you get past the Civil War and into you know, Reconstruction and the period called Redemption, you have to start to see the ways in which you know, white pastors and others and, and churches are really invested in this. And I have a story about you know, a lynching in there that happens behind a Methodist church. And there's, you know, all kinds of books. I, I want to shout out Don Matthews, who has a great book on the lynching of Sam Hose. And it's tons of religion in that book. It's a, there's a lot about evangelical religion and faith in that book about the, this horrible lynching that happens. And so where, where I wanted to go was outside of the realm of, you know, let's talk about the theological things in the Bible and all that, which are all there, right? But what I wanted to do was to show your Christians, your evangelicals were embedded in the KKK. Mm-hmm. And whether the KKK gets rid of it the first time, they're back again by 1920s. And they're, they're running things. And they are Christians. And those burning crosses are, are symbols of evangelicalism. I mean, that's, that sounds very hard to say, but it's true. And I think the ways and in the, in the manner in which, you know, 
even though you get Southern Baptists who are working with African-American pastors during this time period, it's very clear that everybody needs to stay in their own place. And there's no way that you're gonna get around that. And so evangelicals, while they on one hand say they're, they're doing missionary work, on the other hand, that missionary work is about the fact that we want you to become Christians, but we don't really want you in our churches. And so we need you to stay where you are. So by the time you get to the National Association of Evangelicals being formed in the 1940s, what you get is, is that, oh, we're all for this Christian stuff, but no black denominations, even though they all think like we do, we don't want them. Mm. And so you can see how the lines are drawn. And, and the book doesn't really get into a lot about things like the fundamentalist or the fundamentalist modernist controversy, but those things too were racially charged in certain kinds of ways. And I think that it's important for us to understand that you, you know, you had black people going to Dallas Theological Seminary because black people were sitting in conservative churches and listening to conservative pastors on the radio who were white. And, and, and this is how you get this, this is how you get black fundamentalists. So I think it's, it's really interesting to sort of think about the ways in which evangelicals don't wanna look at this history, but what the history points to is a way that when we get to the, you know, the 20th century and we wanna to start to think about what white evangelicals are doing, with, if, if we're starting with Billy Graham, for instance, mm -hmm. then all of, if Billy Graham sits on top of a huge history that he's just pulling from. Mm -hmm. It's not as though he's like some great innovator. What he innovates is how he gets the message out. He's not an innovator in terms of the message he's saying because it's a message that people all understand who are in these groups. Mm -hmm. You use this example of this Freudian slip that someone made of when they were talking about Christian spaces or Christian belief and they actually said Christian race. Mm -hmm. They had tied the word Christian and their concept of Christian to explicitly white mm -hmm. and whiteness. So whiteness and its its role, it it's passed on even within simple terms like that. So where where do you see that going back to the 19th century and forward to the present well, day? Yeah. yeah, I do see it going back to the 19th century. I mean, even if we think about, you know, the Southern formulations of their Christianity post-Civil War and the and the religion of the lost cause. That's a religion about whiteness, but it's also about purity. It's also about keeping the purity of white women together. It's also about sacralizing Confederates because they were, you know, they were martyrs in a certain kind of way. This is this is where this gets started in, in a in a sense. And I think that the ways in which we we think about this being a, a whole kind of a world in in a way, mm -hmm. and and how it gets constructed is through the, the manner in which people make their practices done. So in other words, you know, you think about the songs you sing and all this is, you know, I'm just thinking about why it is the driven snow and all this stuff. It just sets up this whole thing, right? And, and you can't get around it and, and everybody takes it in. And so it's, it's very difficult to dismantle it. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. in, in ways you, you can't just like take it apart and say, this is it. So the language gets embedded in everything. And this Christian, you know, so when he says Christian, you know, it's supposed to be Christian space and he says race, right? Then you have to think about Christianity as being whiteness because you sing about it as being whiteness and, you know, white as the driven snow and all these other kinds of hymns that are around whiteness coded for purity and all of these other things. But it's also about the constructions in which you see, you know, Christianity. How do you see a preacher and, and that a black preacher is not the same kind of thing as a white preacher, right? Because he, you know, he has a different kind of moral authority. Or even in the um, the ways in which January sixth played out, right? You know, that big scene where everybody's praying in the Senate chamber, right? That was whiteness, and 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 how they wanted to describe whiteness. It was though like we're going to consecrate this chamber because we are the right men to do it. Everybody else who's been in here, the chaplain, the Senate chaplain, anybody else who's ever prayed in this space is not even worth it. Mm -hmm. We are the people who are sacralizing this because we're the true Christians, because we're fighting for this country. So that gets mixed up along with nationalism and it makes for a really nasty kind of piece of work, basically. The other piece of language that you call attention to is the way in which in the South, these appeals to civilization mm -hmm. and order 
eventually evolved into the law and order rhetoric that we see now espoused by people who are conservative in theological and political ways. It's a meme. People know law and order and what it means. Mm-hmm. Like people know what it know what it means, even if they can't articulate mm-hmm. what it means. Yeah, exactly. How is that particular type of language and those particular terms used to codify and embed these types of beliefs and practices in these in these communities? Yeah, I mean, I think when you say when you hear when evangelicals say they want law and order or blue lives matter, right, and and all of this other stuff, it's a way in which saying that we know that we should have people who are able to keep everyone else in check. Okay, and so the the default position to this is kind of like, oh, this is supposed to be white, right? Because we had, you know, if you if you think about the nineteenth century post. Um, and reconstruction into redemption, you have all these people who are night riders who come to your house and warn you and say, if you're not behaving, we're going to come and burn you out, or we're going to do this to you, or we're going to come and burn your church. Or, you know, as one of the stories I tell, we're going to come and burn your school. You know, all of these things, right? And so to use law and order is not just about saying, you know, about I'm supporting law and order. It's a threat. And it's a threat to say, if you people don't act the way that we want you to act, then we're going we're gonna to make law and order happen. And we're going to make that thing work. And, at, and it's going to work on our behalf and not yours. Because we are the people who have the law, who are orderly, right? And we're the people who have scripture behind us. We're blessed. And so if you're out of line, then that means if you're not going to do what we want you to do as a Christian, if you have dissent, if you have anything, then that law and order is going to come across you. Mm. Yeah. This just goes back to the fact that this is intentionally obscured within these communities. And especially in light of the things that have happened this week, that ignorance is only a shield for people who are white. Um, Yes. Yes. And I mean, I think we need to sit with that a minute because ignorance is a shield for people who are white, but it's also a way to shield uh, guilty white people from, you know, getting the full brunt of what should happen to them under the law, Mm -hmm. right? Right. So. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I do want to shift the conversation to Billy Graham. You have a really great quote um, that his brand of Christian fervor, fear, and fatalism defined American evangelicalism from the 1940s to the 1970s. Within that really formative period uh, of the 40s and during the civil rights movement, what were his actions and beliefs around this sort of thing? Well, I mean, I think his actions are are pretty clear about what he thought vis-a-vis what he said. And so, you know, I'll use one example. I mean, he's saying he's a graduate and he's for civil rights and he wants to have integrated meetings. But at the same time, he's joining W.A. Chris Rell's church, who's a real racist, you know, and par excellence racist. And, and then says, oh, by the way, uh, I'm going to invite King to come pray at my at my meeting, but I'm also going to go to Texas when he's asked me not to and stand next to, you know, Price Daniel, the governor, who is an avowed, you know, supporter of Jim Crow. So, I mean, I think the ways in which people have let Billy Graham off the hook, mm-hmm. right? And I mean, let him off the hook by saying, no, oh, he's a nice guy, you know, look, he did this with King. I mean, my favorite thing to tell about this story is when you go into the Museum of the Bible into the American section, they have a picture of Billy Graham on one side of the wall and Martin Luther King on the other side of the wall. And they make it seem like they're the two greatest figures in the in the 20th century. You, you could maybe argue that. I'll give them that. But it's though that they were working together to stop racism. And I'm like, that's crap. <laughs> that's completely crap. And I think this is the way in which we've been programmed to think about Billy Graham. When the reality is about Billy Graham, he's a gradualist. He doesn't want to see this happen. He's one of those kinds of people, which I will describe this way. Billy Graham is happy to say that he's for civil rights and everything else, but he was for that happening whenever it was supposed to happen. And then maybe, maybe, you know, when you got to heaven, it wouldn't be segregated, it'd be integrated, you know, but he just was about wanting you to get to heaven. Mm. I, I mean, he didn't care about, you know, making heaven on earth by desegregating everything. And I think, you know, that's what we have to understand. And he's also a person who wants a lot of power. And this positionality that he has since Eisenhower 
you know, essentially. And, and here I'm going to pause for a minute and plug something. If you care about watching about Billy Graham and a really good balanced way to see Billy Graham, the American Experience will be on in May about Billy Graham. And you'll see a really good picture of this sort of arc of his political career mm-hmm. and also the ways in which he was, you know, not as, let's say, not as wonderful as people might want to make him out to be. Mm. Well, that will definitely need to be on people's radars for sure. Yeah. What about during that period from the 1940s to the 1970s in the United States? How did rank and file evangelicals demonstrate their racism? One of the things that comes to mind is the ways in which you illustrate how in response to integration, a lot of evangelicals pulled their Mm -hmm. white kids out. Yes. Yeah. And and went put them in Christian academies so that they will be in Christian private schools. This is the beginning of, you know, and again, we'll, we'll invoke Julie Ingersoll, you know, it's a great book about um, building the kingdom where she talks about, you know, all this development of Christian schooling and how Rush Dooney gets into all of that. And I think that's an important point that I don't really cover a lot in the book, but it's a it's a it's an inflection point about how we see this. I mean, Brown versus Board was something that made everybody lose their minds because they didn't want integration. But you have to also understand why they didn't want integration. They didn't want miscegenation. They didn't want race mixing. I mean, if we have to get back to a 19th, this is why I bring everything back to the 19th century, because you have to understand that the roots of everything is there. So it's not just about your kids sitting next to, you know, a a black child in a classroom. It's about a white girl sitting next to a black boy in the classroom, and maybe they're going to fall in love. And maybe they're going to want to, you know, see each other. And maybe they're going to want to go park somewhere. And that is the thing that that most parents were so afraid of. It's why Bob Jones University existed. And I tell that story about Bob Jones and how they have this whole thing about, you know, not not allowing people to come into the into the school. So I think, you know, what we have to think about is when we see these things to understand that it's not just about a legal thing that's happening that they're against. It's also about a prohibition that they're against. And that's where morality comes into the title is because morality gets used as a way to say, we don't want this to happen. We don't want it. And it's the morality that drives these social issues and, and the ways in which they position themselves socially. So I think that's a really important point to see what's happening between the 40s and, this, and the 70s. And you can think about this, the school thing. You can think about taking prayer out of school, which is the, you know, one of the other important things. You can think about the ways in which you know, integration is not just happening for the public school, but busing, right? Busing becomes a big issue. You know, restrictive covenants about housing. I don't get into all of that, but this is another piece of this. And so I think what we have to really contend with are all the ways that maybe laws and all the rest of this stuff is embedded in this sort of evangelical ideas about racism and their Mm -hmm. fears. Yeah. I may have mentioned this to you explicitly before when we talked, but a lot of times whenever something significant is said, like like what you just said, I feel like those types of moments need to be honored with a few seconds of silence, even on a podcast. <laughs> yeah, well, I, you know, and I appreciate that. And let me tell you why. I mean, this is a little bit divergent for us, but I think, you know, so much of this is couched in a language about how we shouldn't think about critical race theory and all the stuff and the, the current battle that's going on with Southern Baptist right now. But the, the problem is, is that people don't want to hear anything about racism because it is painful. And, and it's painful to think about how deep the, you know, how deep it goes, right? And how deep, you know, all of this history can be traced back to certain kinds of things. And so I'm, I'm, I'm happy with that. We can always be silent and let, let our listeners think about things for a minute, because I think it's important to digest just how deep this, all of this goes. Yeah, it, it is never, you know, an easy conversation, but it's, one of, if not the most valuable conversation that any American should be having. And the thing that I think is contributes to them being difficult is that there is such a wide, wide disparity between the wide experience of sitting with racism merely as a witness, um, because that's the thing about it is that white people like me, they can only lament and feel shame about what their ancestors did or what they did when what they may have done in the past or feel a sense of shame, but then it's an undue and unfair burden for 
people of color and black people that are parts of these conversations that are not just witness to it, but have been, have received and been traumatized and by racism and by the actions of racist white people. So I know that, like you said, that's yeah. a bit of a divergence from going through the the history of these things, but I do acknowledge that there is a lot of emotional work that has to happen um, for people to even be ready and willing to receive this sort of information. Yeah. That sucks that that's the reality. <laughs> but it's a reality. Yeah. One of the things that you mentioned was the fact that this racist concern over miscegenation was what was really underlying a lot of a lot of this motivation. You do have a, a part of the book where you indicate that Black evangelicals have been around for a, a long time, and they've even been in predominantly mm-hmm. white spaces. They they have had their own traditions, like the AME Church and many others that have their own histories but they've also participated in predominantly white spaces. And one of the people that you highlight is Tom Skinner. And that is one of the things that, that he speaks to and he addresses it directly um, in a couple of his writings. How did he try to speak to the racism that he witnesses and was subject to in these predominantly white spaces? Yeah, um, I, I think for this conversation, this is where I'm gonna, I'm gonna turn you just slightly because I want to bring somebody else in, because I think I think if we put both of the, them together, this works. So yeah. let me talk about somebody who was my mentor first, Bill Pinnell, because he's the one who explicitly writes about this in his book about um, about black 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 like me, or I forget how he tells it. But anyway, long story short, he talks about miscegenation in this book, and you don't want me to sit in your living room because you're afraid that I have to sit in the living room with your your white daughter. And I thought, oh, this is really good. And I actually knew Bill Pinnell when I was at Fuller Seminary because he was a professor there. And, you know, this whole history of Black evangelicalism, when we talk about people like Bill Pinnell or Tom Skinner and others, is a really important one because why are they calling themselves Black evangelicals in the first place? Well, it's because they can't belong to the National Association of Evangelicals. So they have the National Association of Black Evangelicals, right? So that they can have, they, they have their own thing because they have to be separated out because the, the evangelicals aren't letting them in in the same way. And even though evangelicals love their stories, especially Tom Skinner, oh, he was formerly in a gang and then he came to Christ and everything. It's the perfect kind of narrative for evangelicals. Look at this horrible life he came out of where it really wasn't that horrible, right? you know, because he's kind of middle class, and and look at where he came. So by the time you get to Urbana in 1970, when he confronts, you know, about white evangelicals about their racism and how they see everybody and how and how they are treating black evangelicals, it's a it's a big moment there because they're not expecting this because he has been in their circles all the time. And I think this is where the, the shock of all that comes and, and also the vilification, right? Because as, as I think about this, you know, you can go back and look and see where Tom Skinner begins to show up in uh, Christianity Today and when they get mad at him and they kind of like put him off to the side for a little while because he doesn't say what they want him to say, right? They cancel him. Yeah, they cancel him. Yeah, yeah, cancel culture, <laughs> whatever that is. But, <laughs> you know, I, I think it's this moment in which evangelicals have to are coming to grips with their racism, but they want to come to grips with the racism the way that they want. Mm-hmm. So the way that they want to come to grips with the racism is like, let's just say we're going to be colorblind. And I'm like, no, you're not colorblind because you see color all the time. You see it all the time. You just don't want to acknowledge that the way you see color is to wipe it out altogether and to make everything white. And I think that's the that's the point, you know, that's the major kind of thing that we're sort of have to think about and consider. So, you know, for these two men, Bill Pinnell is still alive. He's in his 90s. And, uh, you know, Tom Skinner is no longer with us. I think, you know, people who would consider themselves to be black evangelicals right now have a reckoning to think about in light of this book. This is this is not just a book for white people. This is the secret. It's not just a book for white people. This is a book for black evangelicals who are in the midst of this and 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 Latinx evangelicals and, and Asian evangelicals to start to think about, you know, and especially the African ones. I, I want to just call that out right now on the podcast and say, especially for them, it's like, think about the ways in which white evangelicalism has infected you. 
Think about the ways it has shaped, shaped your life, shaped what you do culturally, shape how you think about yourself. Mm. And think about that, how it's, it's circumscribed your life in, in some kinds of ways. And I think that's the other kind of reckoning I'm hoping that's going to happen is that people will see themselves in, this, in, in Tom Skinner's story or in Bill Pinnell's story and go, dang, that's me. What am I going to do? I keep talking about this stuff and nobody's listening to me. I, I really appreciated that story because I didn't, I didn't know it. And it signifies that there are people that have dealt with this for decades. Mm-hmm. We're seeing that again, even in contemporary movements like the Leave Loud movement and what we're seeing there. Yeah. And in a way, it's directly descendant from these sorts of things of making clear that, that these predominantly white spaces are hostile to people that aren't white. Yeah. The fact that there are people that have done that, have done similar work and have had to make similar difficult decisions um, because it is, it takes courage to, to leave it. There are things that yes. it, it's not easy. Yeah. It takes a lot for people to leave. And I think that, you know, there, there was a couple of articles, I think, I can't remember when, but I think it was in the Washington post, right. That was about black evangelicals leaving Maybe it was like a year ago or something. I can't remember. But I think, you know, when we see these stories or the Leave Loud movement or anything, you have to really get in touch with the pain of people. And I don't quite understand. I don't quite know if white evangelicals understand how painful it is, some of the things that they do. I, I have a story of my own in the book, mm-hmm. as you know. And, I, I you know, I, there, there was question about whether I should put that in or not. And I put it in because I was like, I need to put this in because I want people to understand that I know what this feels like. And it, it's okay with me now, I'm cool. But you know, at the time it was just devastating right. to me. And and I was just like, man, what am I doing here? You know, it was it was the beginning of a lot of having to consider what is this thing and why am I in it? To me as a reader, as someone who has conversations like this regularly, I I think mm-hmm. all of those types of things, like <laughs> that is a personal witness and and Pardon my dog there in the background. It's all right. The dog's like, yes. <laughs> the dog's like, I get it. I mean, that strengthens. It's a it's a literal witness, and we're, like we're used to that. That's what the religion mm-hmm. was something that infiltrated your yeah. your mind and your practices and your social life. Yeah, that yeah. should include a part of you. I'm appreciative of that as well that you mm-hmm. that you chose to share that. Your book is it doesn't really focus on Trump. It doesn't need to. One of the quotes that you have no. early in the book is evangelicals are not naive individuals who were taken advantage of by a slick New York real estate mogul and TV star. They were his accomplices. Yeah. I do think that people who listen to this show are well aware of how evangelicals align themselves. And as you said earlier, um, it was really just the apotheosis of their alliance with Trump of decades of work. But we've mm-hmm. seen in really painful, violent deadly ways um some of the impact of the way racism is enacted within evangelical spaces and then just this week alone whenever you're listening to this in the future i'm referring to the murders in atlanta i'm not going to add to the murderer's fame or anything like that by talking about him what we do know is that this was a, a racially motivated murder of six Asian women and two others in Atlanta by a young man who was inculcated in a Southern Baptist church that attempted to scrub its website in response to his actions. I just want to sort of leave it open to you to go wherever you want with this, just because Mm -hmm. I don't think I can anticipate everything you would have to say about this. But clearly we're seeing white evangelical racism at work in this moment too. Yes, yeah. Yeah, I, you know, I'm just so very sorry about the eight people who were killed and, and the women. And as one of my friends said, I want to start it off this way. She's like, there's a strip club on every corner in Atlanta. So the fact that he went to these spas just lets you know right off the top of this top that this is racist. And so I want to talk about the intersection between this, uh, the murderer, the terrorist, and the, um, and the sheriff. Because I think it, it, the, ter- the, the terrorists, the sheriff, and the church are all working together, okay? So what we have here is someone who was steeped in, in an evangelical tradition, clearly a white Southern Baptist church that promoted God and guns, you know, 
something that he would have heard about all the time, that brought in a lot of uh, teaching prohibitions about sexuality and shame. His, you know, he had a tracker on his car. I mean, what 22-year-old man has a GPS tracker on their car unless it's the, it's the girlfriend who thinks you're cheating or the wife who thinks you're cheating or the parents who probably know that you might be out there going to, you know, someplace to uh, assuage your sexual desires and fantasies that have turned violent. So this, this murder, these, this, this terrorist activity that he does, I think directly relates to the ways in which evangelicals have taught about sexuality, how they've taught about race and everything else. And I said this on Twitter in a feed, and I basically said these ideas about you know, exotic sexuality go back to missionaries in 19th century and how you think that um, women of other cultures are basically, you know, um, exotic, foreign, sexual, overly sexualized, and not like the white women that you know. So that's number one. So however he got attracted to this is however he got there. That's one. The second thing is, is that this idea of if you, if you are sinning, you've got to get rid of the sin. It reminded me of, um, I think it was one of the Fireproof movies. And why am I going to forget this guy's name? Because I know his name because he gets on Kirk my Kirk Cameron. Kirk Cameron, thank you very much. Where he beats up the the um, the uh, computer because he's looking at the porn and he wants to get it out of his life. So he yeah. beats up the TV or the, the computer or something, right? And, and every evangelical would think, well, that's a really great thing that he did that. But that's exactly what this guy did. He wanted to get rid of what was causing him to stumble quote unquote, and he killed people. This is the this is the nth degree. And I think, you know, it just came out that his parents kicked him out of the house. So he may have, you know, reasoned in his mind that these women are responsible for me getting kicked out of the house. And and so therefore I'm gonna go punish them. This idea of punishment, you know, I, I'll never forget that I, you know, I said this to, this is a sidebar story, but I said it to Derrida at a conference back in the 90s. I said, you know, evangelicals here don't believe in atonement. They think atonement has to happen for everything all of the time. Jesus' death is just only the beginning. There are many atonements. There's not just one. And I think for evangelicals who think that they have like a really good theology about atonement, right? <laughs> I think this is a good, good way to say, clearly not because you wanted to kill the people who made you sin or you thought made you sin, right? And, and that's, a, that's a horrible thing. I mean, um, I would sum this up to basically say this. This is a week in which we have found out whether it was the Catholic Church or evangelicalism or anything else that religion and sexuality can result in some dire consequences. And the ways in which the prohibitions against sexuality have happened in, in white evangelicalism mainly has resulted in the deaths of these women who, by the way, you know, four of them were Korean and we know the power of evangelicalism in Korean Christianity. And I think, you know, this is where this intersection has really hit me very hard is that, you know, I, I don't doubt that these women are, were Christians. I, I bet that they were. I bet that they were, my, you know, for whatever reasons that they were there, they were there. And it doesn't even matter why they were there or not, honestly. Right. What matters is, is that this guy came in and just, you know, decided to go buy a gun and do this because this was his God-given right. And what do we have to do with the religion that says your God-given right is to have a gun and to go kill somebody? Now, there'll be evangelicals will argue with me and say that I am reading this wrong, but I don't think I'm reading it wrong when, you know, the church scrubs its website, tries to hide what it's been teaching mm. when this is the stuff that they've been teaching all along. And so white evangelicalism in America has, has a reckoning. And if this week doesn't prove to them that it is poisoned, the well is poisoned, the teaching is poisoned, and that they really need to reconsider what it is they're telling people and how they're treating people, I don't know what it is. We started the week off with Beth Moore leaving the Southern Baptist, and we ended the week with the Southern Baptist murdering women. Mm -hmm. Boy, what a week. Yeah. How do you feel media coverage of these sorts of things can respond to this sort of thing? Because there are people that are in our particular Twitter feeds because they're tailored to following religion news, where we see people lamenting the fact, even people with significant profiles on and off Twitter, lamenting the fact that things like 
the sheriff or the terrorist saying that they had a sex addiction or a bad day or a bad day yeah and those things not those things being repeated or going unchallenged by journalists or media covering these things um how do you think that the media even even after everything that they've witnessed uh with evangelicals under Trump with everything else they still can fumble with their coverage of these things and separate from that how would you like to see these white evangelical spaces deal with that sort of reckoning how would you like to see these conversations happening um, within these spaces because there are millions of people that are still in these churches and they they are going to have to do a lot of that emotional work that we talked about earlier let me start off by saying briefly the media question the media question i think all of us lament about that all the time some people have gotten better, a lot haven't. And I would say that they are held sway to what white evangelicals say and believe it in a way in which they are complicit in spreading this message. And I think that's the, the most blunt way I could put it, you know, because it's essentially like, we're just gonna take them at their word and, and not really interrogate what's happening. And like, you know, for them to shut down the, the webpage means that there's far more stuff out there you know, about this church and what they've been saying. And they know somehow instinctively that that has something to do with what this man did. And could be incriminating. And could be incriminating. And so, and they don't want to get sued. And so they just swooped it all down. But you know what? There's the Wayback Machine and you can find anything. So nothing is truly ever gone from the web. That's that's number one, as we've seen when people talk about tweets and stuff. So I think that the media is many times complicit with white evangelicalism. And I think the only way that that gets struck down is for people to insert themselves in the public conversation that are you know, smart and savvy and religion scholars and, and really start to write and put the things out there in various different kinds of ways so that we can change the conversation. And that's one way I wish, I hope my book will do is to change the conversation. And I wanna make sure I got the second question right. Sure given everything that's happened in recent years, even within the last two weeks. Mm-hmm. How do you envision and how would you like to see the the reckoning that you talked about? Um, how do you like to see yes. that play mm-hmm. out in local churches or in or in predominantly white denominations? Yeah. I you know, I think I think for a start, I would like I God, I hope like a bunch of Christian people decide to read my book in a book club or in their small group and and talk about it because I think that would be the first thing, you know, that would really be helpful or take my book and Jesus and John Wayne and, you know, other stuff that's really accessible to people that tell stories and to start to really think about what are these books saying and why why now? Well, it's now because we we have a renaissance in terms of, you know, the rewriting of evangelical history or I like to call it the rewriting mm. and R-I-G-H-T, mm. we're, we're turning it right side up the way it ought to be, you know, where we look at this critically and think about it instead of not looking at it critically. So that's one. Um, for denominational leaders and things, I will tell you point blank that I just don't care about any other racial reconciliation crap, okay? I don't want to see another racial reconciliation thing because it is clear that they have not reconciled and they have not reconciled to anything except their conscience. And so I, I honestly kind of hope that you know, whether that's the Dutch Reformed or the, um, you know, the Southern Baptists or the conservative Presbyterians or all of them, I hope that, you know, things start to fall apart. And that part of the reason why the things fall apart is because people realize that they can't live in these racist spaces anymore. And, and that they have to do this. I mean, it's already happening to the Southern Baptists. They've had big, you know, Black pastors leaving them. They've had Beth Moore leaving them. They have this event on their hands. I mean, if this is not a sign on the door that says, y'all, something's wrong. And, and what you're doing, what you're teaching is not bringing fruit. I mean, even if they want to just be biblical about it, what kind right. of fruit have they borne? It's rotten. It's rotten. So it's, it's pretty rotten. And I don't understand why they continue to think that people need to listen to this stuff. They don't. They can make choices. They can leave. They can walk out. And I actually think that something outside of everybody's control is going to affect all of this, and that's the coronavirus. I think that the virus is going to fundamentally change all these churches, whether they like it or not. And as hard as they're trying to hold on, 
that people don't have to people don't have to do this stuff anymore. You have choices. Yeah. And you have choices online and you have choices not to even go. You have choices to listen. I don't think we'll get to the hardcore people, but I think especially for younger people that all these churches lament about not having, then they have to think about, you know, how are we going to keep our vitality? And I don't think you can keep your vitality by, you know, continuing the racist practices and the sexist practices that you do. Well, I think your book is going to be a really really powerful catalyst for a lot of those conversations to happen. It's a great book. And, and I'm sure that there are going to be moments where people are shocked to read what they read in your book, but it's good. And mm-hmm. I mentioned to you before that I've underlined almost every part of your conclusion. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, but another one of my favorite lines of yours or passages of yours uh, is evangelicals are not being persecuted. Um, because that is definitely a very powerful <laughs> internal monologue that they have with themselves all the time. You say they're not, evangelicals are not mm-hmm. being persecuted. They are being called to account. And I really, really love that. And I'm really glad that you wrote this book in order to hold evangelicalism to account, white evangelicalism to account, and to help people that may be listening to this show that have uh, a background in it and want to engage in these things. So thank you very much for writing the book. Um, By the time people hear this, it will be out. Where can people find white evangelical racism? Your favorite bookstore, Amazon, UNC Press. Um, Yeah, order it wherever wherever books are sold. It's everywhere. And and just for those of you who don't like to read, but you want to listen when you're running or driving in a car or something, the audio book will be out April 20th. And where can people find you online? You're you're offering a lot of commentary about the day's events all the time, and you're a great great follow on Twitter. So I have a um, I have a um, which I have to get out this weekend. I have a newsletter. You can follow me on Twitter at Anthea Butler. Just at Anthea Butler is very easy. You can find me at AntheaButler.com. Dr. Butler, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you. Mm-hmm.